Chapter One: The Spoils of Poynton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Nicholas Clifford. The Spoils of Poynton by Henry James, Chapter One. Mrs. Gareth had said that she would go with the rest to church but suddenly it seemed to her that she should not be able to wait even till church-time for relief. Breakfast at Waterbath was a punctual meal, and she still had nearly an hour on her hands. Knowing the church to be near, she prepared in her room for the little rural walk, and on her way down again, passing through corridors, and observing imbecilities of decoration, the aesthetic misery of the big commodious house, she felt a return of the tide of last night's irritation, a renewal of everything she could secretly suffer from ugliness and stupidity. Why did she consent to such contacts? Why did she so rashly expose herself? She had had, heaven knows, her reasons, but the whole experience was to be sharper than she had feared. To get away from it, and out into the air, into the presence of sky and trees, flowers and birds, was a necessity of every nerve. The flowers at Waterbath would probably go wrong in colour, and the nightingales sing out of tune. But she remembered to have heard the place described as possessing those advantages that are usually spoken of as natural. There were advantages enough that it clearly didn't possess. It was hard for her to believe that a woman could look presentable who had been kept awake for hours by the wallpaper in her room. Yet nonetheless, as in her fresh widow's weeds she rustled across the hall, she was sustained by the consciousness, which always added to the unction of her social Sundays, that she was, as usual, the only person in the house incapable of wearing in her preparation the horrible stamp of the same exceptional smartness that would be conspicuous in a grocer's wife. She would rather have perished than have looked en dimanche. She was fortunately not challenged, the hall being empty of the other women, who were engaged precisely in arraying themselves to that dire end. Once in the ground she recognized that with a sight, a view that struck the note, set an example to its inmates, Waterbath ought to have been charming. How she herself, with such elements to handle, would have taken the fine hint of nature. Suddenly, at the turn of a walk, she came on a member of the party, a young lady seated on a bench in deep and lonely meditation. She had observed the girl at dinner and afterwards. She was always looking at girls with an apprehensive or speculative reference to her son. Deep in her heart was a conviction that Owen would, in spite of all her spells, marry at last a frump and this from no evidence that she could have represented as adequate, but simply from her deep uneasiness, her belief that such a special sensibility as her own could have been inflicted on a woman only as a source of anguish. It would be her fate, her discipline, her cross, to have a frump brought hideously home to her. This girl, one of the two vetches, had no beauty, but Mrs. Gareth, scanning the dullness for a sign of life, had been straightway able to classify such a figure as the least, for the moment, of her afflictions. Fleetovetch was dressed with an idea, though perhaps not with much else. 
and that made a bond when there was none other, especially as in this case the idea was real, not imitation. Mrs. Garrett had long ago generalized the truth that the temperament of the frump is amply consistent with a certain usual prettiness. There were five girls in the party, and the prettiness of this one, slim, pale, and black-haired, was less likely than that of the others ever to occasion an exchange of platitudes. The two less developed Brigstocks, daughters of the house, were in particular tiresomely lovely. A second glance, a sharp one at the young lady before her, conveyed to Mrs. Garrett the soothing assurance that she was also guiltless of looking hot and fine. They had had no talk as yet, but here was a note that would effectually introduce them if the girl should show herself in the least conscious of their community. She got up from her seat with a smile that but partly dissipated the prostration Mrs. Garrett had recognized in her attitude. The elder woman drew her down again, and for a minute, as they sat together, their eyes met and sent out mutual soundings. "'Are you safe? Can I utter it?' each of them said to the other, quickly recognizing, almost proclaiming, their common need to escape. The tremendous fancy, as it came to be called, that Mrs. Gareth was destined to take to flee to Vetch, virtually began with this discovery, that the poor child had been moved to flight even more promptly than herself. That the poor child no less quickly perceived how far she could now go was proved by the immense friendliness with which she instantly broke out. Isn't it too dreadful? Horrible, horrible, cried Mrs. Gareth with a laugh, and it's really a comfort to be able to say it. She had an idea, for it was her ambition, that she successfully made a secret of that awkward oddity her proneness to be rendered unhappy by the presence of the dreadful. Her passion for the exquisite was the cause of this, but it was a passion she considered that she never advertised nor gloried in, contenting herself with letting it regulate her steps and show quietly in her life, remembering at all times that there are few things more soundless than a deep devotion. She was therefore struck with the acuteness of the little girl, who had already put a finger on her hidden spring. What was dreadful now, what was horrible, was the intimate ugliness of water-bath, and it was of that phenomenon these ladies talked while they sat in the shade and drew refreshment from the great tranquil sky from which no blue saucers were suspended. It was an ugliness, fundamental and systematic, the result of the abnormal nature of the Brigstocks, from whose composition the principle of taste had been extravagantly omitted. In the arrangement of their home some other principle, remarkably active, but uncanny and obscure, had operated instead, with consequences depressing to behold, consequences that took the form of a universal futility. The house was bad, in all conscience but it might have passed if they had only let it alone. This saving mercy was beyond them. They had smothered it with trumpery ornament and scrapbook art, with strange excrescences and bunchy draperies, with gimcracks that might have been keepsakes for maid-servants, and nondescript conveniences that might have been prizes for the blind. They had gone wildly astray over carpets and curtains. They had an infallible instinct for disaster, and were so cruelly doom-ridden 
that it rendered them almost tragic. Their drawing-room, Mrs. Gareth lowered her voice to mention, caused her face to burn, and each of the new friends confided to the other that in her own apartment she had given way to tears. There was in the elder ladies a set of comic watercolours, a family joke by a family genius, and in the youngers a souvenir from some centennial or other exhibition that they shudderingly alluded to. The house was perversely full of souvenirs of places even more ugly than itself, and of things it would have been a pious duty to forget. The worst horror was the acres of varnish, something advertised and smelly, with which everything was smeared. It was Fleedevetch's conviction that the application of it, by their own hands and hilariously shoving each other, was the amusement of the Brigstocks on rainy days. When, as criticism deepened, Fleda dropped the suggestion that some people would perhaps see something in Mona, Mrs. Gareth caught her up with a groan of protest, a smothered familiar cry of, Oh, my dear! Mona was the eldest of the three, the one Mrs. Gareth most suspected. She confided to her young friend that it was her suspicion that had brought her to Waterbath, and this was going very far, for on the spot, as a refuge, a remedy, she had clutched at the idea that something might be done with the girl before her. It was her fancied exposure, at any rate, that had sharpened the shock, made her ask herself with a terrible chill if fate could really be plotting to saddle her with a daughter-in-law brought up in such a place. She had seen Mona in her appropriate setting, and she had seen Owen, handsome and heavy, dangled beside her. But the effect of these first hours had happily not been to darken the prospect. It was clearer to her that she could never accept Mona, but it was after all by no means certain that Owen would ask her to. He had sat by somebody else at dinner, and afterwards had talked to Mrs. Furman, who was as dreadful as all the rest, but redeemingly married. His heaviness, which in her need of expansion she freely named, had two aspects, one of them his monstrous lack of taste, the other his exaggerated prudence. If it should come to a question of carrying Mona with a high hand, there would be no need to worry, for that was rarely his manner of proceeding. Invited by her companion, who had asked if it weren't wonderful, Mrs. Gareth had begun to say a word about Poynton, but she heard a sound of voices that made her stop short. The next moment she rose to her feet, and Fleda could see that her alarm was by no means quenched. Behind the place where they had been sitting the ground dropped with a certain steepness, forming a long grassy bank, up which Owen Gareth and Mona Brigstock, dressed for church, but making a familiar joke of it, were in the act of scrambling and helping each other. When they had reached the even ground, Fleda was able to read the meaning of the exclamation, in which Mrs. Gareth had expressed her reserves on the subject of Miss Brigstock's personality. Miss Brigstock had been laughing and even romping, but the circumstance hadn't contributed the ghost of an expression to her countenance. Tall, straight and fair, long-limbed and strangely festooned, she stood there without a look in her eye or any perceptible intention of any sort in any other feature. She belonged to the type in which speech is an unaided omission of sound, and the secret of being is impenetrably and incorruptibly kept. 
Her expression would probably have been beautiful if she had had one, but whatever she communicated, she communicated in a manner best known to herself without signs. This was not the case with Owen Gareth, who had plenty of them, and all very simple and immediate. Robust and artless, eminently natural yet perfectly correct, he looked pointlessly active and pleasantly dull. Like his mother and like Flea de Vetch, but not for the same reason, this young pair had come out to take a turn before church. The meeting of the two couples was sensibly awkward, and Fleda, who was sagacious, took the measure of the shock inflicted on Mrs. Gareth. There had been intimacy, oh yes, intimacy as well as puerility, in the horse-play of which they had just had a glimpse. The party began to stroll together to the house, and Fleda had again a sense of Mrs. Gareth's quick management, in the way the lovers, or whatever they were, found themselves separated. She strolled behind with Mona, the mother possessing herself of her son, her exchange of remarks with whom, however, remained, as they went, suggestively inaudible. That member of the party, in whose intenser consciousness we shall most profitably seek a reflection of the little drama with which we are concerned, received an even livelier impression of Mrs. Garrett's intervention from the fact that ten minutes later, on the way to church, still another pairing had been effected. Owen walked with Fleda, and it was an amusement to the girl to feel sure that this was by his mother's direction. Fleda had other amusements as well, such as noting that Mrs. Gareth was now with Mona Brigstock, such as observing that she was all affability to that young woman, such as reflecting that, masterful and clever, with a great bright spirit, she was one of those who imposed themselves as an influence such as feeling finally that Owen Gareth was absolutely beautiful and delightfully dense. This young person had even from herself wonderful secrets of delicacy and pride, but she came as near distinctness as in the consideration of such matters she had ever come at all, in now surrendering herself to the idea that it was of a pleasant effect and rather remarkable to be stupid without offence of a pleasanter effect and more remarkable, indeed, than to be clever and horrid. Owen Gareth, at any rate, with his inches, his features, and his lapses, was neither of these latter things. She herself was prepared, if she should ever marry, to contribute all the cleverness, and she liked to think that her husband would be a force grateful for direction. She was, in her small way, a spirit of the same family as Mrs. Gareth. On that flushed and huddled Sunday a great matter occurred. Her little life became aware of a singular quickening. Her meagre past fell away from her like a garment of the wrong fashion, and as she came up to town on the Monday, what she stared at from the train in the suburban fields was a future full of the things she particularly loved. End of chapter 1